If you have your Bibles, open up to the book of Exodus. We are continuing forward in our series, um, Redeemer and Redeemed. And um, we had a really great explanation of a lot of the themes which are going to be in the latter half of the book. One of the stories I think I should share, because it's a little bit funny, as I was talking to um, our church plant sending organizations president. That's a lot of phrases there, but the president of the group that has paid and is funding us, Great Commission Collective, and um, the president's like, you're going through Exodus. Why would, why would anybody do that? Because I think, I guess normally church plants go through like Ephesians or First Timothy or something. And uh, I was like, I thought it'd be a perfect book because you get to talk about what it means to be the people of God and what it means to be a group of the people of God. And um, I hope you felt that way, but if you haven't, uh, you can email uh, a complaint at noah at redeemerhuntsville.org. And, um, but we, we've left off after week. We were with uh, Brandon with us last week, but right before that, the week after, or the week before, we were, um, Moses has heard a command, a fresh command from the Lord. We're leaving off verse nine. The people are greatly discouraged in their heart. Greatly discouraged in their heart. And that left... Moses in a position, which we're about to see in verse 10, in a position where he's doubting his evangelism skills. And you think evangelism, what are you talking about? Evangelism, uh, his ability to bring good news. Evangelum, right? In Latin, good news, right? Have you ever been here before? You might tell people that God was sent for them and they won't hear you. And then you think, well, maybe I'm really bad at evangelizing. Maybe I'm not a very good evangelist. I think one of the biggest barriers to take that load off of you, one of the biggest barriers to evangelism is our own misunderstanding that if someone doesn't come to the faith as a result of us sharing, that we've been unsuccessful in evangelism. Anybody ever thought that before? I'm not good at it because they didn't believe in Jesus at the end of it. So we often shy back from sharing the gospel. We might say we're not gifted in evangelism. I don't know if you listen to that today in Moses when he tells the Lord what he says about why he's not qualified to give good news to the people. I don't encourage you to. There's historical reasons, by the way, that evangelism in your life maybe seems not to be as easy as it was maybe even 50 years ago, for some of you who might remember 50 years ago. But the 19th and 20th century, there was enough sheer cultural weight of Christian influence that you could assume that people... That people would just know, oh, I'm guilty before holy God, and maybe I don't believe in Jesus, but I believe that there will be an end of all things, and at the end of all things, I'm going to have to give an answer for my life. Whether you believed in Jesus or not, that was kind of a cultural baggage that people had. And um, in the last 200 years, that's just not the case anymore. So how do we evangelize in a culture that no longer believes, A, that there was even a historical Jesus, which, by the way, academically speaking, academics don't deny. They don't believe a resurrection happened, but academics are 100% positive that there was a person named Jesus Christ who lived in Nazareth in the first century. Or two, that God is an almighty God. So how do you evangelize a culture that doesn't believe in Jesus and doesn't believe in a God or is very much like a pharaohic culture and regularly asks Exodus 5-2 to the evangelist, who is the Lord that I may obey his voice? Who's the Lord that I would obey? Who is God? Why why are you telling me about this? 
in our passage today, we're going to have two episodes. You'll listen for it in a second. We'll have two episodes with a pedigree, a genealogy right in the middle of it, okay? Two episodes with a pedigree right in the middle, and I'll roughly cover that in our two points. So the two, the, the kind of the three sections you'll hear in our passages first, Moses and Aaron are going to tell God their doubts. Then second, Aaron's pedigree is going to reiterate retell, that is, Moses and Aaron's calling. And the pedigree is going to show that Moses and Aaron are equipped to do this work. And then third, the final kind of thing I want you to hear in our passage today is that Moses and Aaron are again going to express their doubts. Okay? So if you have your Bible, that's probably giving you enough time to turn to Exodus. Exodus 6, 10 through 30. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then would Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about the Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Now these are the heads of their father's houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, Carmi, those are the clans of Reuben, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, Shual, the son of a Canaanite woman. Those are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the son of Levi, according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the, uh, the years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimei, and their clans, the son of Kohath, Amram, Ishhar, Hebron, and Uziel, the years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Merari, Malhai, and Mushi, that sounds like a Mulan character. These are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amran took as the wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. Recognize those names. The years of the life of Amram being 137 years. The sons of Ishar, Kohar, Nepheg, and Zikri. The sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elizpan, and Sithri. Aaron took as his wife Elish, uh, Elisheba, the daughter of Aminabad, and the son of Nashon. And she bore him Nahab, Abhu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. And the sons of Kohar, Ashir, Elkanai, and Abiasaph, uh, these are the clans of the Korites, Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel and bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the father's house of the Levites by their clans. These are Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. And it was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and Aaron. And on the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to him, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Our first point today I'd love for you to see is in this text, and you think about how it applies to us, is that we tend to overemphasize our abilities and misunderstand our weaknesses. We tend to over, overemphasize our abilities and misunderstand our weaknesses because at the heart of Moses' statement in uh, Exodus chapter 10 is uh, human disobedience and human doubt. So I'm going to show you that. What's at the heart of Moses' concern 
in verse 12, verse 12 again, if you look at it, says, Moses says to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me, for I am of uncircumcised lips? There's an overconfidence in Moses in this moment. And I don't know what you're thinking, Zach. He literally said he doesn't think he could do it. How is that overconfidence? But it was never going to be Moses' words which convicted Pharaoh in the first place to let the people go. Moses had been given signs, if you'll remember, to authenticate his ministry, Exodus chapter four. And he was told in advance that Pharaoh would not believe his words. So when Moses is protesting to the Lord, there's something else at play, perhaps, in Moses' heart that's a little deeper than, oh, he's actually not gonna listen to me. There's probably something at play where Moses is actually giving himself more credit, his ability before Pharaoh, more credit than the Lord actually wants for him to have. Because again, it was the Lord who gave him the signs. Remember, he was gonna put his hand, his clean hand into his cloak, pull it out, it would be leprous, and then he would put it back into his cloak and it would come out clean. That authenticated the words that he was saying. But Moses' reluctance and the Israelites' despair of verse nine reflect our own tendencies to doubt and disobey God in the face of trials. And I wanna be very clear, it's not like Moses is not without excuse. Like we completely understand why Moses might feel like it's gonna be really bad if I go back in there, Lord. Because remember what happened. He, he goes in and he says, let the people go. And is Pharaoh like, okay, great, no. Pharaoh increases their workload, right? He increases the weight, he increases the quote, and he takes away the tools to do their job. So the people of Israel got their hopes up when they saw those rounds of signs, but now Moses' leadership, nor it seems like God's glory, have actually paid any dividends. Um, but this is, in fact, a lack of faith. Uh, God has commanded Moses to go, and he has said, and he's pointed out, like, my own uh, liabilities, my own inabilities are, are, are going to make me not able to do this. And I would say that that just suggests to you that's probably overemphasizing our own abilities. We tend to do the same with our own evangelism. Maybe we don't say we're a people of uncircumcised lips because that's a little weird to say today, but we might say, oh, I, well, I don't know how to share the gospel. Or you might say, well, I don't have any training to talk to this particular person. Or you might say something like, well, there's just never a good opportunity to kind of get them like in a good in a good spot so that maybe they'll be receptive to what I have to say this probably is what keeps us from being bold about sharing our faith and there's a misplaced fear I think in our hearts that if we do something wrong maybe we will push someone away that if if I share the gospel in the wrong way I might harden their heart neither you and I are powerful enough to push someone away from the kingdom of God. Commentators debate the meaning of uncircumcised lips. This is one of those passages which has led people to believe that Moses could have had a speech impediment, and he, he might actually have. The, um, the Septuagint, which is where we uh, get the idea that he might have had a, uh, a speech impediment, translates the Hebrew word here, alagos, which literally means without words. Lagos meaning word, ah meaning without. So ah lagos. So that's where we think that maybe Moses couldn't talk. He was without words, without the ability to speak. 
And later in 630, when Moses says the same thing again, but Lord, I'm a man of uncircumcised lips, it carries it again, um, uh, the same translation, and it links it back to Exodus 4, where Moses protests and said, but I don't have the ability to speak. So Septuagint, which is the, Hebrew trans, or the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, it's the Greek Bible used in the time of Jesus, that's where we get the idea Moses might have had a speech impediment. It's certainly possible. But textually, what seems to be happening in the, pack, uh, in the passage is a little stronger than that. It, it doesn't seem to be emphasizing the inability of Moses, but it might actually highlight his feelings that he's not equipped to do the work. That somehow God's provision for the moment is insufficient. And here's, here's why. In the Hebrew concept of self, of a person, the word lips has a much wider meaning than just the ability to conjure speech. So we think of lips, we just think of this physiological feature on our face. Um, but speech, because it's connected to rationality, because it's connected to our sense of who we are and our ability to communicate, speech is what makes, for example, homo sapiens distinct. We're the talking animal. To talk about deficiency of speech is Moses saying, I feel like I have a flawed nature an insufficient nature, like I don't have, I'm not up to snuff. That's what Moses is saying with uncircumcised lips. I'm not prepared. So for example, that's exactly what's at the heart of Isaiah's protest in Isaiah chapter six, where he says, whoa, I'm a man of what? Unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. Does the entire nation of Israel have a speech impediment? Probably not. I wasn't there, but probably not. He's talking about a flawed nature of themselves. Moses doesn't feel adequately prepared for this moment, perhaps. And that's not, a, that's not a hard conceptual leap for us to make because if somebody tells you to spit it out, they don't actually want, unless you're talking to a toddler, they don't actually want for you to spit out of their mouth what is in their mouth. They want you to just say it, right? Just say what you're thinking. Stop being reluctant. Or if someone bites your head off, have they gone literal T-Rex and they have not, right? So when you bite your head off, their internal state is one of anger and they're acting out on that anger, right? They've lost control of themselves. And perhaps Moses believes his weakness leaves him inadequate to do the task God's called him to and that's because Moses, I posit, fundamentally misunderstands what our weaknesses are all about. And we perhaps misunderstand our own weaknesses, so let me remind you of the last time that God told Moses that he was not equipped for the task, that he couldn't talk well. Exodus chapter four, verse 11. You don't have to turn, I can read it. Then the Lord said to him, who made the Lord, uh, man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or blind or seeing? Is it not I, the Lord? So there is some reason perhaps to think that Moses had a speech impediment, but the Lord's point here is it's irrelevant. It's irrelevant how you feel about yourself. I have made you for this purpose, Moses. I'm the one who made your mouth. If you have unclean, uh, if, you have a, if you have uncircumcised lips, I'm the one who made you. I made you for this task. And could it be, perhaps, suggesting this to us, that our reluctance to evangelize is predicated on, and it's, it's, it's a misunderstanding of the purpose of our own poverty. Might we be people who are nervous of evangelism, Nervous to do the same thing Moses is doing, to go to Pharaoh, the culture of our Pharaoh, to say, Lord has something to say to you because we misunderstand our own weaknesses. 
We see them as liabilities rather than the assets that God designed them to be. Hear how Paul talks about, for example, how thankful he was for his poor speech. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. You can turn there if you like, but I can read them, or I can read the passage. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5 says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. So Paul's saying, I didn't come with fancy speech. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in what? Weakness? That's what he says. He doesn't say strength. Weakness. And in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not plausible in words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith may rest not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now Paul, to be clear, is not saying that necessary preparation is useless. Elsewhere, he's going to tell Timothy to study. Okay, so let's make that clear. Paul's not saying that there's no use for preparation. Paul is simply emphasizing that the power of the gospel is located not in crafty arguments or impressive presentations. So could it be that a barrier for us being evangelistic people is because we think that we are not prepared to do that work? We're not prepared to go to our pharaohs and say, Thus says the Lord, because we feel like we're inadequate somehow. Paul is saying this is an adequate speech, might actually be a liability. In Paul's day and age, the, the value of an argument was predicated on how well it was crafted and presented. So when Paul is saying, I'm glad I didn't do that, he's saying so that you would know that the, the argument is valid. What I'm telling you about Christ is valid, not because it's said well, but because of what it's done in my life and those lives of people around me. Does that mean, for example, um, that, that we shouldn't prepare? Again, not at all. So what's the purpose of our poverty in evangelism? What's the purpose of that? Why does God make Moses the way he does and continue to send him in before Pharaoh regardless? Weakness guarantees that the faith is built on revelation of God and not our own really well-crafted arguments. Now that's important. So should we not make well-crafted arguments? Should we be people who don't do that? No. Here, Paul again, 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 6. For the weapons of our, our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So, we know that it's not impressive speech. We know that preparation is necessary, but it's not about really good arguments, but we still should make some arguments. So what's the relationship between weakness in evangelism and boldness in prophetic speech and destroying arguments? What a great line, to destroy arguments. Here's some principles from Scripture. I got three principles from Scripture. When we boast in our weakness, we're elevating the glory of God. So Paul says that throughout his letters. I'm, I am glad, he says, that I'm weak so that, so that your, your, your faith is not based in my strength. So it doesn't, it doesn't have to be a faux humility. We can boast in our weaknesses and say, you know what, I don't have this perfect. I'm actually pretty terrible at evangelizing, but I'm going to be faithful because God's going to get the glory in this moment. So we want to boast in our weakness. Number two, we want to simplify our message. And when we simplify our message, we just emphasize the cross. Have you ever heard evangelists sometimes who they get so convoluted in apologetic arguments with just arguing with people on the street 
but they just missed the cross altogether. I can't tell you how many, like, I'm not going to name the guy, but I've seen so many um, YouTube videos of apologists, like, arguing with Mormons on the side of the street, and they just missed the cross. They'll say everything wrong about Mormonism, and there's a ton of it. Believe me, like, it's own personal project to make that clear to the world. But they missed the cross. So if we simplify what we're saying and we're clear, we can emphasize the cross. Paul said, I'm determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Doesn't have to be words when necessary either. We want to actually speak about the cross. And then third, when we care for people to obey Christ, which is their best good, to be clear, we can surgically demolish lofty arguments, anything that's harmful, destructive, or false, right? Um, we can do that for the sake of a soul. The difference there is when you have a soul in mind, somebody that you love, that you want their good to obey Christ, um, that's a good time to destroy an argument. A bad time to do it is on social media where you just engage in a debate with people. It doesn't have to be timid. Our evangelism doesn't have to be timid. We do need a boldness. We need a boldness on account of folks' soul, the person for whom Christ died, not some abstract position, some straw man that we want to punch down on. So our weakness, simplicity, and care could seem like liabilities in debates, discussion, or sometimes even in evangelism, but the Bible could not be more clear. They're the design of God to ensure that someone's faith is not built on our cleverness, but on God's goodness. Not on our cleverness, but on God's goodness. So here Paul again, 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. So to keep me from being conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that he's given, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pled with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he, the Lord, said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, Paul says, therefore I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardship, persecution, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. J.I. Packer, in a book that I commend to you all, called Evangelism, the Sovereignty of God, said one of the biggest barriers to evangelism is the lack of the ability to distinguish between the effect of evangelism and the act of evangelism. Our faithfulness in evangelism is not bringing about the effect of evangelism. Does that make sense? So our effectiveness in evangelism is not how we know if we're being faithful. So let me say it in a different way. We cannot, we cannot make people rise back from the dead. That is not a power given to us. So the effect of our evangelism is not how we measure whether we're faithful in it or not. Who alone can raise the dead? Instead, our faithfulness in evangelism is only related to how widely we spread the news that there is one who can raise the dead. And you might be thinking, evangelism, we're in Exodus. When Moses is going to Pharaoh, he is announcing good news. The captives are liberated. That is evangelism. That is a good news statement. And Pharaoh, if he wanted to obey, if he wanted to listen, he would have been blessed in it. But again, as we've seen throughout the chapters, he's unwilling to. He set himself apart from God, and at every turn he has thwarted and been violent and oppressed in the sight of God's revelation. So Moses is thinking, I'm ineffective at this task. 
but it was never Moses' task to make Pharaoh's heart soft. That was never in Moses' court. That was always in the Lord's court. The thing that made Moses faithful or unfaithful was, did he go to say? Did he go to say? And I hope that's liberating news to you. Because if, if we have labored under the pretense that I'm bad at evangelism if people don't come to know the Lord, that is a barrier for our evangelism. If you can turn the corner in your heart and know, I'm unable to make anyone rise from the dead, so I am just going to be faithful announcing that there is someone who can rise people from the dead. So why did God send Moses in with unclean, uh, excuse me, uncircumcised lips? It matters not whether the phrase meant he had a speech impediment or felt unprepared. Actually, both of those points make this point clear. God sends him back in to charge Pharaoh to let the people go because it was never about Moses being the deliverer. Do you remember all the way back when Moses gets the announcement that he's going to be the deliverer and he goes back and he tries to deliver in his own strength and he ends up killing somebody and it goes backwards like, who made you the king over us? And he runs away thinking, I'm a complete failure at this. Moses was never going to be the deliverer. It was always going to be the Lord that did the delivering. Moses was just going to be the one announcing it. God would be the deliverer. That's why Pharaoh's heart will be hardened so that God can demonstrate his glory, majesty, and dominion over all false claims to deity. Pharaoh sets himself up as a god, and so God is going to show Pharaoh's not a god, and Moses' job is just to make this announcement. So if Moses is strong, though, the people might be under the delusion that Moses was the one who delivered them, not Yahweh. So Moses must fail in this way, in his inadequacy, so that God will get the glory, you see. Because it's God ultimately who's going to prove his power through the signs, through the plagues. Moses is going to be shown to be a faithful man, but an inadequate man, because only the Lord is sufficient because he's weak in the flesh, which gets to our next point. There's a universality to sin and hardness of heart. Because Moses knows that Pharaoh won't listen, that's why he's discouraged. That's why the people are discouraged, verse 9. Pharaoh's hardened heart is emblematic of humanity's universal condition and our open rebellion to God. All people everywhere are born in a natural state of sin where we don't want to hear the voice of the Lord, where we, like Pharaoh, ask, who is the Lord that I shall obey his voice, Exodus 5, 2 hear people say that all the time. Even your heart sometimes might say, why do I have to obey, right? And if in your heart, though, in your evangelism, you think, you go to this person, you think, well, they won't listen. That's okay. Our call is not even to open their ears. Our call in evangelism is, again, not to resurrect them. It's only to tell them about the one who will be able to resurrect them. And so it's really important for us to understand that task. Because the universality of sin, our task is universal proclamation. And there will be people that don't hear us. In our city even. There will be people that don't hear us. But that's not on us. Our task is to be faithful, to speak, to share the gospel. But because of the universality of that hardness, faithfulness to, again, bring that task to bear is not about bringing the effect, new life, but only the speech act of evangelism, saying the truth, simply opening our mouths. Here's an interesting fact about this that might encourage you even more. If you want, my motivation today is to help us to be people who go forward from this Moses position of I'm not prepared to being a people say like, my lack of preparedness is actually my greatest asset. 
The word evangelism, like most church words we tend to think about, actually has secular Greek uh, origins. So, for example, Aristophanes could talk about a herald coming back from a king's victory, and the announcement that herald would make would be euangelion. It would be good news, evangelium in Latin. We don't have to think about very hard or for very long why the New Testament writers thought that's a perfect word for us to talk about our king who won a victory and now we want to tell everybody about it. The euangelion, the evangelism. Evangelism itself can take on a variety of forms. Announcing that our king, King Jesus, has won over our hearts of sin and death. Take a ton of forms. Well-crafted arguments. Simple presentations. Open air, air crusades, right? It could be one-on-one Bible reading meetings at a coffee shop. All of them require one simple, one simple act, just opening our mouths and saying something. That's why Moses, again, highlights the inadequacy of his lips. It actually has nothing to do with his lips. He just says, I don't feel like I can speak this good enough. How many of you guys have thought that? Well, listen to Paul's words here. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God, because for our sake he made him who knew no sin become sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. So how about that? How about that invitation to somebody? Reconciliation, not plague. Firstborn given, not taken, right? Righteousness of God, not burden of man-made religion. Second Corinthians 19, just simple phrase to say when you open your mouth, in Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself. How many people in, in your workplace, in your cubicle zone, need to know that God is reconciling the world to himself? Even other believers need that good news every day. When the latest white sheet comes out, the memo at work, which makes work really hard, we all need the reminder that Jesus Christ died to bring us into relationship with God so that we live forever in union with him. The good news of that. Which brings me to our sec- my second point today. God himself, God himself prepares our abilities and leverages our weaknesses. Verses 14 through 30. The structure of our passage today is a little weird. It's a weird passage in general because it's not exactly a his, like it's not exactly history in the sense the way it's structured. It's a retelling, uh, and it could be a summary, but it's certainly a chiasm. Which you're like, what is that? Okay, when you think of just think of it like this: it's a it's a staircase in and a staircase out. Chiasm just means crossing. Okay, and uh, you're very familiar with chiasms, even if you don't know it. Just bear with me. There's a corresponding point on the bottom step and on the top step that correspond to each other, and you hear chiasms all the time. Do you know what makes JFK's 1961 inaugural speech so famous and so easy to remember? A chiasm. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country, right? That's a chiasm. You hear the stair step, right? The mirror of language. In Hebrew, like Exodus, which is written in Hebrew, chiasms can be much larger. They're huge, okay? And 
Part of what makes this whole passage one unit is its chiastic structure. It's a chiasm. So verse 10 and verse 30 mirror each other. And in a chiasm, the thing that's in the middle is the most important thing. It's the most important thing. And it's really odd, right? Smack dab in the middle of a chiasm here is what? A genealogy. We tried to practice all those names and couldn't just skip over it this week. Candidly, if you think about it literarily, it's a bizarre place to put a genealogy. If you think about the book of Genesis, right? You have a toll-it-out structure where you have genealogy, history of all those people, genealogy, history of all those people. This is a genealogy which seems to come out of nowhere, and then it just goes away forever. It's just right in the middle of here. What's its purpose? It's uh, the ancient Near East equivalent of 60-point bolded font. Genealogies, they always matter a ton in the Bible, and I know that they're difficult to read and they're tricky because we don't speak Hebrew, so sometimes the names are really tricky, so it can feel really abstract. Like, why are we reading this list of names? But they're really unique, and they tell us a lot about God because God is not a God who has things in abstract, but he enters into a relationship with people, and he keeps lists of names of people because he's in relationship with people. So why do genealogies matter? Because God is a God of relationship. That's why your Bible's full of them. He makes unbreakable promises with people, and that's what this genealogy here at the center of this chiasm is about. It's saying all of these people matter, and Moses and Aaron have been prepared for this purpose. Commentator Victor Hamilton summarized the significance of this genealogy with seven reasons. So the first reason, he says, is this genealogy traces six generations even to after Aaron and Moses, telling us about Phineas, the priest who will impale a couple for defiling the camp in the book of Numbers. So it's significant because it tells us, for example, that the five books of Moses should be read as one book. That Phineas here in Exodus is linked to the book of Numbers, and so we should think about the books of Moses as one cohesive book. The second one is, unlike most genealogies and all of Israel's neighbors' genealogies, these include women. Because the Lord enters into a relationship with both men and women. He created both men and women. And third, the genealogy puts Aaron before Moses. Remember the son of Amram, verse 20, she bore him Aaron and Moses. Because bloodlines qualify priests. You must be born to do the work of a priest. No one can be called into it. That, by the way, is the reason that Paul, excuse me, that Peter makes such a big deal about you and I being born into a holy priesthood. Because we're born again, we're born into a priesthood, because no one can be called to be a priest. You have to be born to do it. But then fourth, Jesus descends from a line which is mixed, where the priestly blood and the kingly blood of Judah, the priestly blood of, of Levi and the kingly blood of Judah mix. And listen to this, Aaron does not marry a woman from the tribe of Levi, which is the priestly tribe, but he marries a descendant of Judah. Uh, in, the, in the Greek translation, Elizabeth, the daughter of Aminadab, who we see in Matthew and Luke's genealogies. So you've ever wondered, why does Jesus have the right to be a priest and a king? It's because he descends from the blended line of Aaron, which intermarries with a king and a priest. We have real reasons, by the way, to believe this genealogy is historical and accurate because Aaron 
is listed with all of the awkward family details, all of the relationships which all of us would say are inappropriate is the best way to put it. Mythological narratives, they try to minimize scandal, but Moses tells the truth. People had adulterous affairs and had babies, and this is the genealogy. The Bible tells the truth as it really happened. Number five, the relief between Aaron's priesthood, which is temporary, and the Melchizedek priesthood, which is eternal, is because Aaron's mother and father are known, but the priesthood to which Christ belongs is not named. Melchizedek is without these. And then the last two, which really matter, despite the failure of the entire Levitical line, Phineas is the only faithful priest in all this, the work of God moves forward. You see, every single one of these Levites, except for Phineas, has some gross moral failure. They're priests. They're born to do this work, and they can't do it because they've not been given a new heart, and the work of God moves forward. And then finally, in this genealogy, in this most important, we see God's promise kept. In Genesis chapter 15, God promises Abraham that his people would go into Egypt and there live for four generations, and then they would be brought out. If you read from Reuben to Moses, it's four generations. Four generations. This genealogy then shows us of God's faithfulness to prepare Moses for this task. Moses might feel like a person of of uncircumcised lips, but the truth is, in this genealogy, the Holy Spirit has inspired Moses to write. He's showing he's actually born to do this work. And his uncircumcised lips, he keeps pointing to, they're part of God's design. They're part of God's design. That assurance adds even more details when God at the end of verse 26 says, and you will march out in your hosts. That, that, that word means in battalions, that God isn't going to just let them run out in the, in the scurry of the night, but instead they're going to march out. They come in uh, they, as a nation, they're enslaved, but they leave not as slaves, but as a nation. They march out, parade out of Egypt. And so God gives, as we, as we come to our close, God gives four simple commands to Moses throughout this passage. The, uh, the, the passage to 7-9 where there's more links, it was just too long to preach. There's a specific line in there about the Pharaoh being able to mimic that I really want to spend some time on. So I had to break this up. And um, so you'll see four here that don't line up perfectly in our text. But the first imperative that God gives, an imperative is a command. It's a part of speech, it's a command. So the first one is go. Second one is tell. The third is see. And the fourth is take. Make a big deal of these four imperatives. The first thing God tells Moses to go. You and I, you and I, just like Moses, will not be able to make our announcement to Pharaoh unless we go to Pharaoh. So in the coming days and weeks and years of Redeemer's life, we're going to be prayerfully thinking about who can we send from us to go? Who will we send to go? But then also among you, who will we send to go to UAH, right? To go to A&M, to go to Calhoun, to go and tell people that God has reconciled the world to himself in Christ. To go. And then the second thing he says in verse 29 is, tell, tell Pharaoh. Tell Pharaoh what? And tell him to let the people go. But in evangelism, right, unless we're going, uh, we're never going to tell. But once we get there, what do we say? Tell. Well, there's a, there's a fun little 
thing that you can think about Campus Crusade teaches in evangelism training, I think it's very helpful and encouraging to us. I mean, it's encouraging to me. It's just called the power of sometime, okay? So I'd like to hear your story sometime. I'd like to tell you my story sometime. I'd love to tell you what Jesus has done for me sometime. I'd love for you to come to church with me sometime. And when works, right? Just two statements, sometime and when works. When can I hear about why you made that decision? When can I schedule that time with you? When can I tell you about what Jesus has done for me? When works for you? C, there's a sign that Moses is going to be given by the Lord, and we'll talk about it next week. He's going to throw down his, uh, his staff, and he's going to take it back up, verse 9. We'll, we want people to see Christ. We don't want to share lofty, really fancy arguments. We don't want to confuse people with really dense doctrine initially, right? Um, we want them to know Christ crucified. We want them to see Christ. And then take, right? We want there to be a testimony. You can share your testimony. Say, this Jesus, you're going, you're telling them, and now they're, you're showing them Christ with your speech. Jesus Christ died for you. And can I tell you what he's done for me? I was lost. I didn't have a purpose. I felt like my life was meaningless, but Jesus Christ saved me, and he can save you too. Let me remind you of our simple task. It's just to open our mouths. Our job is not to bring people back from the dead. Christ did that, and because Jesus Christ died to do that, you can't fail. You can't fail. You literally cannot fail or frustrate God's purpose or power. You're just not powerful enough to do that. He calls you to join his effort in announcing that Christ, in Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself. And your weakness is your greatest asset because it's in that weakness. Christ saved me from this weakness. That's the power of of your euangelion, this power of your good news, that in spite of our weakness, in spite of our insufficiencies, in spite of our sin and shame, Jesus Christ loves us and he brings us into union with himself because he died for us. So I leave you just with a challenge, a challenge as I close. Um, just think of yourself, this is another cruism. I will by when. Who will, you, who will you tell? Who will you go to? Who will you tell? Who will you have see Christ? And who will you share a testimony with? Who by when, and by when will you do it? So maybe this week in your groups, you'll share your who by when. And uh, Lord willing, we will see people come to know the Lord and uh, we will be faithful to reach our city for the gospel. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your power, the gospel. It's demonstration to us that you are all that we need and that in our weaknesses, your strength is perfected. We ask, Lord, now as we come to the supper, that you would help us to believe it and that you'd help us to believe the gospel more by confirming in us your word and your work. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.